0: You are listening to an episode of Dope with Lime, a production of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont College. Each episode of Dope with Lime explores the life, work, and legacy of Lillian E. Smith. Subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud and make sure to follow us on Twitter at LES underscore center. Welcome. My name is Matthew Touch and I am the director of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont College. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Ben Railton professor of English and coordinator of English studies at Pittsburgh State University. In his recent book, We the People, The 500-Year Battle Over Who is American, Railton argues that throughout our history, two competing yet interconnected concepts have battled to define our national identity and community, exclusionary and inclusive versions of who gets to be an American. At the Lillian E. Smith Symposium in October, Railton talked about his recent work in relation to Smith, Afterwards, he wrote a piece on Smith for the Saturday Evening Post, where he talked about Smith's importance. Today, we are going to talk to Railton about his work and Smith's continued influence. Thank you for joining me today, Ben.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be talking with you.
0: I am too. So, of course, the first question we have to ask is, how did you come across Lillian Smith and discover her?
1: Well, and and the answer is particularly apt because it is you and the center. Um, I grew up in the South and I grew up interested in history and literature. And I think at some point I encountered Strange Fruit, although I don't believe I read it. But the truth, and it's a a shameful truth, but I don't think the shame is mine alone, is that I really didn't know much at all about her until, until you began this work as the director and connected to the center and thus connected me. Um, more fully to the center and to Lillian Smith. And and again, while I am personally ashamed that I didn't know more until I was able to start learning through that connection, I think that's a shared a shared problem. I think it really reflects how much more we all need to learn and connect with this voice and this life and her work and the work of the center. And so I'm, I'm really glad for about the last year to have begun my own uh, journey in that way. And to also, I hope, kind of help share the word and spread the word in, in some of the ways you mentioned because I think that is something we all should be doing.
0: And I think what you mentioned too, is the fact that you grew up as a wanting to study the history of the South growing up in Virginia and Mm -hmm. you you grew up in an academic family as well. And I think Mm -hmm. that's kind of saying that not knowing about, or maybe picking up strange fruit, but not knowing about or even being within academia itself. Have you thought about that at all?
1: I have. Yeah, I think, um, it's a real reflection that even though, you know, I grew up in the, in the 1980s and, and went to college in the 90s when the canon was really expanding and even kind of exploding and so many new voices were being added, and that's been really meaningful. And despite that, uh, there's a lot of work to be done. There are a lot of voices, particularly maybe ones like Smith, who are so countercultural, who challenge so much of what we believe of our narratives, of our, of our collective myths, I think a lot of those voices still have struggled to find a home, even in the expanded canon and and yes, even within academia and certainly beyond. So I do think it's a reflection of the real need to continue that work to not feel that we've completed in any way the work of recovery and, and collective memory revision that we need to be doing.
0: Yeah, there's a lot more to be done. I mean, we find people every day um, that we need to add to the canon where their voice are important. And then when we get to the classroom, though, we have that such confined time of how to actually teach and who to teach, then it becomes what and who do we privilege in that classroom. Um, in your talk at the, at the symposium, you link Smith, of course, with the lost cause narrative, and she talks about that throughout her writing, and it's in specifically exclusionary visions of American identity in the late 19th and early 20th century. Can you tell us a little about your talk and the connections you see between those debates at that time period, of course, when Smith was born in 1897, um, and Smith's work?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and this is another example where, uh, for me, learning more about Smith, connecting more to her, fundamentally affected and, and shifted in a, in a really meaningful way my thinking. I have been thinking for a decade or more about both, on the one hand, the development of the lost cause narrative and the nationalization of it, the way in which it becomes a national powerful narrative that by that time, the late 19th century, and really throughout the 20th. And that I've also been thinking for at least a decade about these ideas of exclusion and inclusion and the development of kind of national exclusionary narratives. But I really hadn't linked those two trends nearly fully enough in my thinking until I started thinking about Smith and, and what her work helps us see and, and her life helps us see. And that was what I really started to think, you know, I think it's not just correlation, it's at least some causation that these two national narratives, these two trends really develop parallel to each other in the late 19th century and into the, the early 20th with full force, the development of that national version of the Lost Cause narrative, of a neo-Confederate narrative of history and race and identity, and then the development of, of some of the first really defining national Policies and narratives of this exclusionary perspective, exclusionary immigration laws, for example, that really start in the late 19th century and then and then expand in the 1920s. At the same moment, again, when you have things like the construction of Confederate memorials in places like Charlottesville in the early 1920s, I just I've, I've come to really think that those two trends, those two developing national narratives and myths, exclusionary ones, white supremacist ones, don't just parallel each other, but they're really linked. And and it was Smith and her work that really helped me think through that link and that was sort of half of what I tried to articulate in my talk in October and then the other half was how Smith herself of course highlights those exclusionary narratives not just for the South but I think in a national way and in a human way and then models the opposite models an inclusive identity an inclusive perspective um, through her work through her life through her voice that challenges those narratives and offers a very very different possible narrative possible way of being for Americans individually and collectively. So that was what I tried to trace in that talk. And she and the center really helped me get there.
0: And I think it's really interesting. You mentioned the 20s as that kind of converging moment of exclusionary narratives and lost cause narrative.
1: And of course, that's when
0: she's coming into her own, um, you know, formatively being in China and then coming back and working at the camp and then seeing Mm -hmm. that kind of um, outpouring of work that she does in the 30s with the journal and then of course with the novels and the books that she publishes in the forties and and later into her death in 66. So I think that's a really kind of pertinent thing to think about is kind of that moment, not just her time in China, but that moment nationally after World War I and all of these things that occur of course in 1919 and following into that next decade.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I think one example of that I think we sort of have a collective sense in our, in our collective memories, maybe, that, that you've got this uh, second Ku Klux Klan that begins um, in the 1910s and then really blossoms in a negative way in the 1920s. And I think we have a somewhat of a sense that that second Ku Klux Klan focuses their racial terrorism, their white supremacist activities on African-Americans on the one hand, and then uh, immigrant communities on the other hand, Catholics, Jews, other immigrant communities, but this would really help us think through that those aren't just sort of two threads. That that's the same thread. It's the same trend, and they're such an example in the South, of course, but nationally for sure, of that kind of national convergence that Smith is then so directly, as you say, sort of coming of age in that moment and then writing and and living and working in response to.
0: Yeah, and of course we're still going through these debates today. And you know the way I connected with you was actually on Twitter. So online. And mm-hmm. you're very active on Twitter. You know, you're, you're a prolific blogger. I think a post every day and things like that. And Rose Gladney, when she talks about Smith's Dope with Lime, which is the column that she wrote for the journal that she co-edited with her partner, Paula Snelling, and of course, is the title of this podcast, she labeled that uh, Dope with Lime as being very blog-like, you know, very kind of 20th, 21st century um, internet culture. And how do you think Smith would engage with these mediums, like Twitter or with blogging or with, dare we even say something like Facebook or Instagram? And how do you think she would engage with them and break through all the noise that's, that's around?
1: I think she would definitely want to. And I think she would be in a similar mindset that a lot of us are, I think, where she would be frustrated daily, frustrated by, by the noise, by the propaganda, by the, the fake stories and the kind of the the viral spread of of some of the worst of what holds us back as individuals and as communities and and so i think she would take breaks i think she would be someone who would who would have to post every i don't know every couple weeks i need a break from this 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 is this is hurting my soul but then she would always come back and i think she would come back because she would recognize at the same time as those worst trends that these are spaces where there's a real democratization, there's a real possibility. She struggled so much, as we know, with being heard as much as she should have been and, and felt that she wasn't, I think, in a lot of ways. And I think these online spaces would have given her another opportunity to be heard. And so as much as it would have been frustrating, I think she also would have been someone who really recognized this is a place where I can get my voice out there, I can get my work out there, outside of some of the strictures of the publishing world or the powers that be. And so I think she absolutely would have, embraced that side been frustrated by the worst but come back to it for the possibility it offered her and been one of those voices that we needed that we absolutely were so blessed to have in those spaces sharing that perspective
0: yeah i think that's interesting what you say too about the fact that she would get frustrated and of course you mentioned too that she was frustrated with people not listening to her during her own time and pigeonholing her in specific issues so i think that 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 she would survive and thrive in that like you say and I think she would be one of those fierce kind of online voices. And is there anyone on Twitter, you know, who's engaged in this type of public scholarship that you kind of would think about to even dare we say compare her to?
1: Yeah, there are, there are a lot. Um, But there are two who particularly come to mind. One of whom I know you've talked to um, for the center and connection to the center, which is the historian Carrie Lee Merritt, um, who has the Meritocracy now podcast and YouTube channel, um, and Carrie Lee is someone who is is likewise, I think, in a, a really inspiring outsider kind of relationship to some of these conversations, um, purposely outsider, kind of challenging orthodoxies and hierarchies of, of academia, of scholarship, and of, of society, but also has developed such a following and such a voice, um, is so influential, at least as much as, as any um, historian and public scholar that I know. So she's one example. And then the other one I was thinking of this morning um, it, it is the journalist, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who created the 1619 Project for the New York Times, um, and who is another example of someone who is not employed at an institution of higher education um, and so might not seem like a, a gatekeeper in that sort of old traditional way. And that's right, and that's, I think, important that she's coming at the, at the conversation um, from the perspective of journalism and of public scholarship, but also adding so much to even the most academic conversations as well as public ones. And, and there's a reason the 1619 Project is, I hope, to be used in so many classrooms and institutional settings because it has added to those conversations. So I think both of them are people who, who have the same kind of interesting dynamic that Smith had and who are adding so much to our conversations in the ways that she does as well.
0: I totally agree with that. When, when I was thinking, my thinking immediately went to academia for some reason, and that's totally the wrong way to think. I like the fact that you brought out Merritt and um, Hannah Jones about the fact that they are speaking publicly about these issues and speaking vocally about them and engaging with individuals like Smith did, um, like I think Smith would do. You know i think of lewis moore always when i think of, of sports because he always talks about and points out the issues with with sports and race with sports no matter what mm-hmm. kind of sport he's talking about um i think of others as well of course there's a there's a myriad we can mention here we won't go into the list but there are a lot of voices you included that we were online and speaking um in these spaces publicly you know mm-hmm not speaking in the classroom or to the people within the academic walls or in the corporate walls or wherever, speaking publicly as Smith did um, in her work and throughout. And, you know, she had a lot of memorable and kind of quotable things that she said. And, you know, I have a lot of them that I could probably read and and list off. And I think I'm starting to memorize them. But what's maybe maybe one of your favorite quotes or a couple of quotes from her? and, And why do you kind of gravitate towards those? towards
1: that one or towards those yeah she is incredibly quotable i agree and i'm going to go with two because i do think she's so telling on these two sides exclusion and inclusion her her recognition and challenge of the first and then her modeling of the second so one quote that i think really where she really pins down those exclusionary trends in a way that feels so 2019 2020 it's 2020 now 2020 to me is a quote from her forward. Actually, both of these, I think, are from the 1961 forward to that edition of Killers of the Dream. Um, And so the exclusionary uh, quote, or the the quote where she highlights that is uh, where she writes about those advancing that narrative that for the sake of a mythic belief in the superiority of their, quote, whiteness, unquote, they are willing to drag us to the edge of destruction because they have lost touch with reality. I think that gets So many levels to that exclusionary narrative in place so clearly and then uh, later in that forward where she's really arguing for what she wants to advance in such an inspiring and important way um, uh, smith identifies the big problem of the age as quote how to make into a related whole the split pieces of the human experience but then she argues with the i think kind of hard-won optimism that i see in her even at at her most frustrated she argues that it is our nature to create relationships that can span the brokenness. And I think that, to me, is the kind of voice that I still need. This feels like such a moment of split, of division, of break, and of that, the edge of destruction because they have lost touch with reality, all those darkest trends. But then that, that continued belief that it is in us, it's not just our goal, but it's in us to span the brokenness, to find a way to move towards something better. I think even at, at, at her lowest, I feel that from her and I and I, I need to feel that in early 2020. So those are quotes that, that highlight both those sides to me.
0: I think that those quotes are pertinent and that whole preface is just, is powerful. I mean, this is after the start of the civil rights movement, you know, College of the Dream appeared in 49 and this is the reissue and it didn't really, it didn't sell well, Publish, the publisher mm-hmm. didn't push it, you know, bookstores stopped selling it. It was kind of, I think she was as dropping bombs in Atlanta with the book, or maybe that was before, but it didn't really go over well. And then this, this introduction has so much in it. But there's a few quotes I always go to in it. I was looking through it as you were reading yours. But one kind of reminds me of Ibram X. Kendi and how to be an anti racist and those discussions mm-hmm. that he's having in that book. But she writes, It is the apathy of white southerners that disturbs me. And may I add, this apathy is north and west of our region, too. There's so many people who are determined not to do wrong, but equally determined not to do right. Mm-hmm. So that, so that splitting and and maybe not doing anything or looking and not doing anything, but also that splitting of the mind, which happens in a lot where you know this is wrong, but what are you doing to rectify it mm-hmm. at all? Um, so yeah, I think that there's so much in her that's quote and still relatable to today, which of course leads us to what do you want people to take away from her work? You mentioned that there's all of this discussion of the issues that we have and we're working with and, and dealing with, but there's also this hope in her work too. So what do you want people today to kind of take away from her?
1: Yeah, and and I guess I would say three quick things. One is, is first of all, just kind of where we began, which is I want people to, to engage it first. I think we still, as we said at the beginning of this conversation, desperately need to add not just her, but many folks, many voices, to our, our conversations, our, our classroom ones, our scholarly ones, but also our collective ones. And so job one, takeaway one, would be listen to this voice, read her, engage her, connect to her, listen to her. Um, the second would be uh, the subjects of, of that talk of mine in October, um, to recognize how much this, this individual voice can open up to us those collective trends of both Exclusion, white supremacy, these narratives that that divide us and hierarchize us and, and and oppress so many Americans. How much she can help highlight those, past and present. But then, but then also how much she models the alternative, the inclusive voice, the inclusive vision. And so that certainly would be the second thing, the way she opens up both of those to me, defining and foundational and ongoing conversations. But then the third thing, and I think it's maybe the most important, although they're all important, is just that she. She did the work she did. She lived the life she lived. And it was so it would have been so easy in so many ways for her to to step back, to give up, to just become private in one way or another with all the different challenges that that, that she was facing and all the different aspects of her life that were perceived anyway as countercultural, as outside of the mainstream. Um, but instead, she continued that work. She continued that work personally. Um, uh, she continued that work at the at the camp for so long. She continued it with so many others that she inspired, like Pauli Murray, the the young activist who was such a key correspondent of hers. She continued it in her writing. She never gave up, despite being in so many ways again seemingly um, at a disadvantage compared to the kind of dominant narratives of her culture and our culture. And. And so i think that's the other thing is is i think we need those models we need those models now more than ever of of folks who who weren't who never took the easy way but also never stopped um and and i think she's a really wonderful example of that and and doing all those first things engaging her encountering those narratives reading her thinking about her listening to her just also models for all of us that possibility even especially when things are at their toughest
0: yeah and i think that to wrap it up, um, her quote from The Journey and the quote that she actually has on her gravestone Mm
1: -hmm. sums
0: up, I think, those three things pretty powerfully. I mean, she says, and this is on her gravestone, um, next to the chimney at the camp where she served as director and then spent the rest of her life, death can kill a man. That is all it can do to him. It cannot end his life because of memory. Mm -hmm. So the fact that the physical death happens, but the life is still there. And I think what you're, what you say, kind of, that encapsulates what you're saying um, with all of those, with all those issues, all those things. Thank you for spending time with us today. We appreciate it.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. This is a, a wonderful project and a wonderful part of the larger project of the center that I'm so happy to continue to be connected to.
0: And we look forward to, to talking to you more later and to. Hearing and reading more of your work as time goes on, and if you would, right if back you would like, and if you would like to follow Ben on Twitter, can you tell him your uh, Twitter Twitter handle real quick?
1: Sure, it's American Studier. Just those two words, American and Studier uh, connected.
0: All right, thank you, and I hope you have a good day.
1: You too, thanks. Man.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Dope with Lime. Did you enjoy this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag Dope with Lime on social media, or get in touch with us at LES Center at Piedmont.edu. You can learn more about living at East Smith and the center by visiting www.piedmont.edu/les.